And people were reaching out to me. They'd say, what does a dazzle do? Why do I need a dazzle? What is this position for? We have interpreters. Shouldn't this be their job? And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. They're totally separate roles, separate responsibilities, separate ways of looking at the work. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with dancer, choreographer, actor, and dazzle Alexandria Wales. More about what a dazzle is later in the episode. Right now, I'm going to do something odd here and urge you to go elsewhere if you can. Crazy, I know. You see, Alexandria is deaf and uses ASL, so we video recorded this interview with ASL Interpretation. And you can watch it on the Keenan Institute's YouTube channel. Just head to YouTube, search for Keenan Institute for the Arts, and you'll find Alexandria's interview on video. You're of course welcome to listen to this podcast, but just know that though the words you'll be hearing are definitely Alexandria's, the voice will be that of ASL interpreter Justine Rivera. Got that? So, head over to YouTube if you can, or just listen on. Please note that you'll hear sometimes long pauses after I ask Alexandria a question. They're actually very active pauses because Justine is interpreting my question for Alexandria. I didn't edit these silences out because I didn't want this audio episode to gloss over the fact that a hearing host was interviewing a deaf guest. Make sense? Okay. All right, enough of the housekeeping. Alexandria, just this last season, appeared on Broadway in the acclaimed revival of Entozake Shange's seminal play, for color girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. This was not her first time on Broadway, though. She understudied Marley Matlin in the revival of Spring Awakening, and then she went on in the part for the run's final month. Before that, she acted in the legendary Deaf West Theater production of Big River, which after its Broadway run, toured throughout the U.S. and even played not once, but twice in Tokyo. She's acted in some of the country's most respected regional theaters, from Minneapolis's Mixed Blood Theater to Los Angeles's Kirk Douglas Theater. And she's also been featured in several popular TV shows, including Nurse Jackie and Law & Order Criminal Intent. She is a member of Heidi Latsky Dance Company, and she is the co-founder of BHO5, a company whose mission is, quote, to usher in a new era of authentic artistic representation of American deaf people, unquote. I started our interview by asking her how she discovered dance in the first place and then decided to pursue it as a career. I don't know if I necessarily discovered dance. It was really more of a recognition of saying, oh, this is a really good fit for me. This is something that I'm really interested in. I think I might have been two or two and a half. And my parents, a doctor had advised them and said, hey, maybe try dancing, a movement class, because um, she is becoming deaf and through meningitis. That is how I became deaf. And they suggested that I take a class to see if that would be helpful. 
just with the gross motor skills and movement to increase that hand-eye coordination. And my mom, she was really just when she tried, she didn't really understand, but you know, it was like, I found it, you know, I said, yes, I can move. I, I just loved it. I fell in love with it. It was really playful and creative. So starting with the age of, I believe, two, two and a half, that's when I really began. And then I took a break for a few years because of just life, things that happen in life and, you know, the journey that you're on. But when I went back to it, I really focused in on it as a young teen. I believe it was not only a physical experience, but it was really very athletic. It was quite athletic in a way in terms of the technique, the just the high consistency and demand of what I was doing. And then as I was getting older, I was in an environment where I was getting the best of everything, but at the same time, I didn't feel like I necessarily fit in anywhere. And so I believe that dancing was sort of like my safe haven or my escape. And it really became more about becoming more connected with who I am as a person and as a dancer, but also as a way of communicating. Because I know that in hearing spaces, often when I spoke or, or used my voice, I found some challenge. They they would say things like, you sound weird, or you, or you're not really deaf, are you? Because you can speak. And, you know, I was really just fascinated with dance often it would be, well, then you're not really deaf because you like to dance and you you can speak. So I said, you know what? I really, it, it's dance for me is it's a way to communicate just amongst human beings in general. The most primal basic layer is communicating through your body. It's It's a means of communication, a language of its own. It's not about words. It's about how we carry ourselves, how we exist, how we live in our body, and looking at what does it mean to do that? How do we carry a story in our body? How do we share ideas? How do we push the status quo? So I think that just in a way of my, it was like my personal act of rebellion, really, to find dance as a way to be myself in a space where where people would often question who I was and how I carried myself. And so something that my parents, you know, I'm just, they were huge fans of it. They were huge supporters of my journey. And I didn't really have to think about a plan B or what do, what do I do if this doesn't work? Or, you know, it, they were so incredibly supportive. And they said, you know what, I, we believe you have something here. We want you to keep going with this. And so I'm exceptionally blessed with that because I already had that support system built in. So speaking of communication, I'm guessing that you might have been the first deaf students many of your dance teachers were teaching, possibly. How did you yeah. evolve a, a, way to, a way to teach your dance teachers how to communicate with you? I think that's a really good question. The thing that we had to learn to understand is dance is not just oral based. It's not audio based. It's it's physical. It's based on your vision. It's it's soulful. And there are so many layers that are carried within the world of dance. 
And with the teachers that I worked with, it was really more about following along the physical movements, the choreography, the structure, working within a group, using peripheral vision to support how we are going to move together as a group. And so I really, you know, every dance teacher is a little different. However, there was this one, this huge moment in my journey where I was 15 and I went to a summer summer program that was based at Gallaudet University campus. And the program was called Young Scholars Program. And so there were two parts. There was, you know, the performative acting part and then the science. There was like the art and science. And so in performing, you know, one summer I participated and the first time in my life there was a professional deaf dancer. I was being surrounded by them, you know, skilled professional deaf actors. They had already traveled the world. They came to DC for work. And that was a huge epiphany. It was a huge shift for me. It's like, oh, I am doing the right thing, you know, and maybe I'm coming from a place where my choices are, oh, this, maybe it seems a little weird, but once I found more people who were in alignment with my line of thinking, it was like, whoa, there's a community here. There's really something here. And it's something that just kind of helped me to keep going. And, you know, speaking with these deaf dancers, actors, they're professionals. It was really profound in the same language. And it just kind of shaped my confidence moving forward. So when did you realize, was it at that point that you realized you wanted this to be your career? I think it was around that time. Yeah. I think it was kind of like I was in it for life. It was, there was never not a moment of, uh, yeah, I'm going to do something else. No, it was, yes, this is what I am going to do. It, I didn't really have to think of doing anything else that, you know, gave me that level of authenticity or deep gratitude, joy, all of the things that it gives me, even through all of the struggles going through dance and performing on a stage, really, that became a second home for me. And whenever I went on stage, it was very just reassuring, regardless of what was happening outside of the stage. That was that one space that I held dear. And working with these artists, it was just so powerful. It was a powerful moment for all of us to share our experiences with each other and sharing that with an audience. And it's really, it's, there's more to it. You know, I think it's more than, oh, this is going to be the career. It was really more like, this is who I am. This is what keeps me happy. How do I keep doing more of this? I couldn't really think of another journey. Hmm. So thinking back between your first professional gig and your experience most recently on Broadway, I'm wondering if you can talk about, let's start with the good stuff first. Can you talk about the improvements that have been made so that artists like you can do their work to the fullest? Mm, that's an interesting question. My first professional job that I did as, you know, as a paid actor or actress, I was 13. And <laughs> I was a dancer and a play, and it was about a beach party. 
it was a really fun play. It didn't really require much speaking or language or signing. It was really all in the dance. And I just had a good time. And at that time, there was no like provisions for interpreters. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like with last year, I had interpreters. I had a person who, it was director of artistic sign language, a D-A-S-L or known as Dazzle. And uh, some people may call it sign master. I may elaborate on that a little later, but mm-hmm. um, that sign master, we don't use that term anymore. Oh. But last year we had a Dazzle, Director of Artistic Sign Language, and we had interpreters for the creative process. And that was an ongoing work in progress, seeing how that expanded. There was education that was involved, that was ongoing. And for everyone involved, especially the producers, the creative team, and everyone within the company, it was really just a different level of understanding the different positions between a dazzle where their focus is really on everything within the creative side, the production, almost a a layer of dramaturgy involved, uh, talking about the carers, decisions that are being made, all the creative decisions that are being made. Whereas the interpreters and the director of the interpreters is really focused on providing access and mediating and providing that access to communication So during that play that I did, I believe it was a musical called Hit the Surf, Hit the Surf. And so that was when I was 13 and I was dancing and lively and having fun. And that character wasn't written for a deaf character either. Just like Ntozaki Shange, her her Lady in Purple was not written as a deaf woman. And so I think that that is you know, a continuous exploration that I have in my journey of what does it mean to embody characters that on the page are really can be open to the actor's interpretation or what the actor delivers and brings to the character. And so it's that level of excitement for me of how it's written with the culture, the history behind it, and the deafness. And I feel both sides of it. And the reason why I mentioned the difference back when I was 13 compared to last year with For Colored Girls, the biggest shift is how far we as a society with artists, theater, dance say, yeah, let's move forward. Let's progress to broadening who's at the table. And there is a difference there. It's a different shift, a different approach. And there's still tons more work to be done. There's still a lot more education that needs to happen and it's ongoing. But there's more space for those conversations to happen. And really, it just takes everyone to commit to realizing that there is just so much that we don't know because we're still learning together. Well, I I think one way to talk about the work that has yet to be done is to talk about your company, I think. And I'm wondering if you can talk about- BHO5? BHO5, which in its mission statement talks about authenticity. So can you talk about what, what, well, I have a few questions about it. One is, what does the name of the company mean? 
And what really, what made you want to to create the company and what you want to accomplish with it? So BHO5 is one way of notating the language of ASL. There are different ways to notate an ASL or document in text. And so it's an homage to those who taught me how to notate, how to document sign choices and translation. It's called ASL gloss. So when you ASL gloss, it's a way to notate certain sign choices or documents. So BH is an acronym for both hands. BH. Both hands. The O5 refers to the gesture of the shape that you make with your hand. And it can mean many things. It could be an enlightening or a realization in terms of how you shape open your hand from a zero to a five shape or lights changing. And so there are so many different signs or things that you can say using the O5. If something is lit or if say a room has been dark and then it has suddenly been lit lit up, then you turn the lights on or the spotlight on, or you hone in a spotlight into a certain space. So as you can see my hands, as they're moving, I'm moving them from a zero shape to a five shape. And so that's the O5 part. And in our company, we want to shine the light and bring attention, bring attention to the forefront and to the foreground in terms of recognizing what's most important and what we need to value. What's the value within a person, within the language, within the culture, the artistry that a person brings, all of the things that encompass and are built into that person, we want to recognize and shine that light on. For BHO5, right now, the reason why I decided we needed to at least put something simple is we wanted to be clear. We wanted a website to be developed and people were reaching out to me. They'd say, what does a dazzle do? Why do I need a dazzle? What is this position for? We have interpreters. Shouldn't this be their job? And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. They're totally separate roles, separate responsibilities, separate ways of looking at the work And really using BHO5, we wanted to build an opportunity for people to learn. And we wanted to build it in a way that they could read in their own time. Because it can be a lot of information. It can be a lot to take in. And so we wanted to make it in easy to to read, understand, in your own time way to absorb that information. Because you don't know everything. I don't know everything. I've been in this field for so long, but I still don't know everything. But I commit to ongoing education, learning, improving, and making sure that we're paying our artists and educating folks to do so. We want to expand the pool of artistry, the artistry that's within this group of Dazzles, both old and new. That position of ASL consultant It's a very specific role. You have ASL consultant, ASL advisor, and then the reason why we call, uh, say, an ASL director or director of artistic sign language, a dazzle, it's the 
the level of commitment that is required for the thought process, the creativity that you're delivering, all of what it takes to deliver and create a story that will help support the director's vision, help support the choreographers, the performers that are within it. And so they're part of the conversation overall. And in terms of maybe it's someone who is signing and the characters from Boston, what kind of sign choices might we ask them to use to communicate in sign language with, say, a deaf person from Japan? If they don't use ASL, then what do we do? And so those are the things that where you work closely with the actors, you work with the creative team, that's the Dazzle, Mm. Director of Artistic Sign Language. That's the the level of skill and how embedded you are into the team, the creative team, because it takes a lot of experience, learning different nuances that comes with that position. The first time I became aware of the position was, it wasn't known as a Dazzle then, it was a sign master, was Phyllis Freelich was the sign master on Sleeping Beauty Wakes. So I, I loved watching her work. I wonder if you could talk about one specific job or moment in your work as a Dazzle that was particularly challenging, just so we can get a better understanding of what's involved. I'm laughing because unfortunately it happens a lot more than I'd like to admit. (laughs) But um, really Phyllis was one of my mentors and she was one of the the people that I want to honor. And she was one of the people that I had thought about when I created BHO5 and that notation. Uh, In theater, it's called uh, Sign Master or SM back then. And a group of theater makers in DC, they were deaf themselves. They understood that oftentimes on the daily call sheet, it was becoming very confusing because you have a stage manager and then you have the sign master. And oftentimes in theater, we abbreviate. So we're like, wait a minute, who needs to show up on this call sheet? It says the SM needs to show up at this time. And so it was causing a lot of confusion. Now with the word master itself in our current social, political, racial climate, you know, using the word sign master now sort of has a different connotation and we wanted to sort of step away from, from that connotation and really look at what it actually means. And so when there was a challenging time, speaking to the challenging time to answer that. Unfortunately, it does happen often. So with television, stage, film, when we add the dazzle, they often, in the process of preparing for a production, usually the addition of a dazzle happens right before the production actually starts filming or right as you go into rehearsals or right before something begins. And so a lot of the prep information that goes into developing the production, a dazzle essentially has to really quickly sort of download all of that information and they have to get up to speed much quicker than most folks that are part of the creative team. And presumably, I gather, you're not paid for all the preparation you have to do before you show up on that first day. Correct. 
Yes. <laughs> so that needs to change. Yes, it does need to change. Absolutely. And the work, the amount of work that it takes to support that ongoing creative process and to support the actors who are actually doing the work that incorporates the sign language, whether they are native users of the language or someone who has been casted who has never signed, used ASL in this production, and has to learn along with this creative team. And the amount of time that that can take to just dive in headfirst and try to do all of that, it's it's something that needs to be improved. And for a Dazzle to have an interpreter available and in advance for an interpreter like uh, for interpreted theater, for deaf and hard of hearing audiences, it's something that needs to improve, whether it's just usually it's like one interpreter for a room and most hearing maybe two or three deaf people, it's just one interpreter and they don't get the breaks that most folks need and get. So when everyone's on break Oftentimes, the interpreter is still interpreting for those side conversations or those impromptu meetings that are production meetings. Sometimes it's just side conversations. Um, if they're in a separate room still doing some work, then, you know, if the interpreter has to go with someone else, then I'm left without an interpreter. And so not everyone has an interpreter who's available to them at all times to f- facilitate the communication. For me, an interpreter is really not necessarily just for the deaf or hard of hearing artists. They're really there for the room. They're there for everyone. They're there for everyone who doesn't know ASL. So if you don't know ASL, that means you need an interpreter to help communi- help you communicate with me. And so it's really thinking about, you know, thinking about what we prioritize and the process with this deaf person and what their experience is and how they interact with folks, there's a lot more that goes into the process that has to be thought out. And also looking at the level of trust that you have to build and develop. It's really hard when decisions are made without the deaf individual's input into that space. Hmm. So that's, that's a huge challenge. And what do you think could be done, I guess, clearly hiring more people, but is there another way that your your work could be made easier in that regard? It's really about the education and it has to be ongoing, whether it's educating ourselves or even just being open to admitting that you don't know everything is okay. That's preferable. That's a good first step. So saying, oh, you know what? I really don't know everything about what is required and realizing what the possibilities are, what the potential is and the flexibility to adapt to those different needs that happen during the process. Because initially at the onset, it may look different than what everyone may have initially understood, but as you get comfortable and you start to build those connections and relationships with each other, you need to allow yourself the space to adapt. In other words, you have to let go of the rigidity 
there's a rigidness that comes with trying to work with people. And the more time and energy that is spent on being rigid, the less time there is to spend on doing the work. So let me do my job. I know what I'm doing and I know how to keep myself open to know what I need, to know how to ask for what I need. And I need folks to meet me halfway. And also the other thing is to put in the budget a line item that line item, and it's not just one line, line item, it's several. It's for access, one for, say, the Dazzle, making sure that that's budgeted in for. And because it's just tough. It's really tough to work in a space where the money's run out. We don't have the budget for, for it. It's an afterthought. And it's like, well, we should have started with that. <laughs> you know, let's start with the budget. Right. And then finally, I wonder if you can tell us about any upcoming projects that you're particularly excited about. Well, I actually just did three episodes of The Flash. And the character that I played, her name is Murmur. You have to see the episode. I don't I don't want to spoil it. But um it was really fun to play that character. She's, you know, she's the bad guy. She's a villain. Oh, she's, she's bad. a super villain. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. Really fun. She's so bad. It's horrible. Um, but it was so much fun. It was really fun to play that character. And I do have another project coming up. Um, well, I have several, but I'm, I'm not at liberty to say, but I'm very excited about. <laughs> if you'd like to read a longer version of this interview and learn more about Alexandria, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And do check out the YouTube video, if you can, to hear from Alexandria directly. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pier Carlos Lenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks for listening.